Hello and welcome to All Souls Anglican Church. I'm Father Stephen. If we've not met before, I would love to meet you following the service. This is a, a very different service than what we normally do in the sense that I'm going to stop and talk to you every few minutes, uh, including now. Normally, I would be, I would be leaving you uh, in silence to, to contemplate what we are about to do together. Um, but we're doing an instructed Eucharist this evening, so welcome. I hope that this will be informative. Um, more than that, I hope that it will be formative and that it will um, increase your love for Christ, that it will increase your faith to recognize that He is present among His people and that He has given Himself to us, uh, especially in the sacraments. And so, uh, as with most things, um, there's about a billion more hours of things that could be said for every single one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. There's no way that we're going to be able to cover it all, but hopefully it will at least be a doorway into the, 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 the bottomless uh, mystery that we are engaging in as we do these things. Um, so I want to begin uh, just by giving you a brief overview of vestments, which are the, the robes that we wear every week. Uh, and then I'm going to orient us a little bit uh, to worship in general. Uh, and then we're going to begin, and then it'll be a little bit jolting. We're going to sort of stop and start as we go, okay? Um, but for starters, uh, you'll notice that everything here is green. Because we share space, occasionally our colors are not the same, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the liturgical year uh, in a few moments, uh, and we'll unpack some of those colors then. Um, but for now, uh, I'll just start explaining sort of what I'm wearing, and I'd like to do that by reading for you the vesting prayers that I say every week um, as a way of sort of helping you understand that there's, there's a lot of layers here. There's, there's multiple layers to everything that's happening. Uh, and so not only do each of these robes have uh, cultural significance, but there's also uh, a, a spiritual significance to each that we, we try to keep front of mind as we say these prayers. So what I'm wearing right now is called a cassock alb. Uh, what Mark and Louis have on underneath the black, if you guys want to stand up, the black is a cassock. So under, under their kata, which is a, a, a longer version of a surplice, which is the white sort of t-shirt thing, uh, is a cassock. The cassock, you guys can sit down, thanks. The cassock would have been uh, clerical streetwear. So, so a lot of you guys are kind of like, oh, wow, Father Stephen wears a collar around all the time. Well, up until like 40 years ago, any priest would have just been wearing a cassock out and about all the time. And there's actually a resurgence of, of younger priests that are starting to do that. I'm, I'm on the cusp only because I wouldn't have to shop for clothes ever again. It would be amazing. I would just be wearing the same thing every day, but no one could make fun of me for it. Or I guess they will anyway. Uh, what I'm wearing is called a cassock alb. Uh, and so historically what would have happened is I would have been wearing a black cassock, and then I would have put this length of alb over top of it in addition to all the other things. And so over time, we, we sort of simplified a few things here and there. So this is, this is called the cassock alb. When I put on the, the, the alb, as we short, shorten it to say, I pray, cleanse me, O Lord, and purify my heart, that washed in the blood of the Lamb I may attain everlasting joy. This robe is an indication that I am a baptized person. So when I put this on, it is a reminder to each of us here that when I'm up here messing about, what I'm doing is I am representing baptized people. I'm not up here because I'm special. I'm not up here because I'm more holy uh, or because I'm smarter in any way or because I studied theology. Uh, I'm here because I've been set apart by the church, but primarily I am here as a baptized person. 
And so just as when we, when we baptize, a lot of times the, the person being baptized will be dressed in white or be given a white baptismal gown, this is a, a hangover of that gown. I get up here as a baptized person. Then I put on my belt. This is called a cincture. And when I, when I put this on, I pray, gird me, O Lord, with the cincture of purity and quench in me the fire of concupiscence that the virtue of continence and chastity may remain in me. I, I'm, I'm essentially asking for my belt to remain closed, right? I, I, I want to be pure. I want to be pure in heart. I, I want to be gathered up um, by God's Spirit. Um, my particular alb has a, a, a sewn on uh, what's called an amice, this piece here. Normally, uh, a priest would, would tie this on first, uh, but I'm, you know, I, I do it the quick way. And I, I, pr I pray, place, O Lord, the helmet of salvation upon my head to repel the assaults of the devil. And so this is uh, just another form of, of covering to, to uh, be sort of set apart in that way. Um, I'll then uh, place my stole, which has a, a cross sewn in above my neck. I, I kiss the cross. We'll, we'll talk more about kissing in a moment. Uh, spoiler alert, you kiss the things that you love right? So this, is, this explains part of the ritual of, of the things that we do here. But I put my stole on and I pray, return to me, O Lord, the stole of immortality which I have lost in the sin of my first parent. And although I, unworthy, approach your sacred mystery, grant to me nevertheless everlasting joy. That tension there is, is true throughout almost all of the pre-Eucharistic prayers, both the prayers said uh, by the priest in private uh, or, or the prayers that, that have been said by the faithful over the years that, um, that unworthily I approach the sacred mystery, right? And so there's this catch of, I really shouldn't be here, and yet you've called me to be here, so there's no other place to go. So this, uh, if you ever see anyone wearing this in a liturgical service, generally what this means, at least in the Anglican world, this is a priest's stole, okay? Uh, a deacon would have theirs to the side and, and gathered, this is a deacon. This is a priest. Um, so I would, I would put my stole on, and then uh, I would take my chasuble, and there's a, there's a glossary in the back. You can, you can look up all the, the actual definitions of these terms, but I'll, I'll put my chasuble on, and I'll pray, O Lord who has said, my yoke is easy and my burden light, grant that I may be able so to bear it that I may obtain your grace. Amen. And so again, this is an, an, a, a way of showing forth that I have been yoked by Christ. I, I'm under His authority. Um, I have a friend who talks about the chasuble and, and, and the, the vestments of a priest as, as a butcher's apron. And I'm up here and I, I'm dealing in sin and death and the redemption that Christ brings. And so this is my apron that I tie on uh, as a way of, of sort of even cloaking myself from, from the realities that we're engaging in here. Um, and, and then they all have, they have symbols. So I, you know, on this one I have a cross. I have one with an Agnes Day on it that with the lamb. Um, all of these things are designed to um, gr grant us an awareness of the mysteries that we are entering. And, and part of that, um, this obviously was not in the mind of, of the, the fathers of the church when they developed the vestments that we now have. But but one of the um, uh, unintended consequences that's a benefit to us, I think, is that there's also a mystery a little bit about who I am, right? You can't walk in here and immediately assess me and know whether or not you fit with me. You don't know how I dress necessarily. 
Uh, you know I've got a ridiculous haircut, but that's really all that you can actually see about me. And that's, that's purposeful. This is supposed to obscure a little bit of my personality because I'm, I'm not standing up here as Stephen. I'm standing up here as a baptized person. And, and as we'll talk about more in a moment, I, I sort of go between speaking on behalf of all of us to God and then speaking on behalf of God to all of us. And so it's, it's a good and right thing that I should be obscured a little bit in my person and, and set apart uh, in, in doing uh, this work. All right. Um, and then we, uh, as a group, we pray back here a series of preparatory prayers that uh, helps us to orient our minds to what it is that we are doing. Um, all right. Because of the way that uh, we have it tonight with, with our children, uh, I want to make sure that they have ample time for the, the work that they're going to be doing. Uh, and so I'm going to save some of my comments uh, that, that I think really need to inform the whole of what we're doing here until we get to where would normally be the homily. I'm not actually going to give a homily tonight, but I'll save some of that uh, for then. Uh, and instead, what I'll do for now is I'll, I just kind of want to drop into um, the things that we're doing in the entrance rites, and then we're going to go through the entrance rites, and then we'll dismiss the kids, and then we'll, we'll kind of come back to some other things, okay? So to begin with, there's the preparation. And this is not uh, the, the way that this little box got put here. Sorry, I don't have page numbers for you, but this is not an indication that this is separate from the liturgy. It was just a spacing issue. But the preparation really is the beginning of what we're doing. Um, there's a reason that I don't usually come out and say, hey, gang, how's everybody doing? And that's because I think it's actually a very important moment as you enter into the nave, right? You are coming into the ship of the church, and there is something different than what happens in the rest of your life about ready to happen in this place. And so most of us need a moment for our, our minds and our emotions and our will to arrive where our bodies are. So I would encourage you, if this is, if this is your church and you come here regularly, um, try to get here early. Try to get here five to ten minutes early. Don't, don't do it so that you can come and talk with your friends or have a minute to catch up on your phone. Those are, those are fine things. But really, the catching up with friends happens out there, and when we enter in here, we're, we're going to do something different, and we want to get really quiet, and we want to allow the Spirit of God to start speaking to us, because we believe, and I'm going to get into this way more in a moment, but we believe that this is about encounter. We are actually encountering God here, and so we want to prepare ourselves for that encounter. And so we take this, this moment of silence as a recognition that God is here and He is speaking to us if we have ears to hear Him. After we have that, those moments of silence, which we'll have in just, just a minute here, uh, we'll begin the processional. And if you've been here before, you know that usually I start from the back and, and a whole group of us processes in. And that processional order is very precise. Uh, it's all layered with meaning. If you've been here uh, for when our bishop is here, you'll notice that I'm usually last in line. But when the bishop is here, I'm not last in line. And this is a sort of the first shall be last and the last shall be first situation. So in bigger processionals uh, where there's multiple clergy, it's, it goes by rank. And so uh, unordained acolytes go first, and they're in a particular order, then uh, ordained deacons, then priests, then, you know, priests who have more longevity or, or those that are canons or deans of a diocese would come, and then the bishop would come last, and if there's an archbishop, he would even come behind the bishop. Um, 
We are led in usually by the cross. Sometimes we'll have a, a special processional where we'll have incense involved. Um, but the cross leads us in, and it's, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm going to use the word picture and symbol a lot tonight, and I, I beg of you, break out of a modern understanding of symbol, okay? Symbol does not mean less than real. We, we think symbol means, well, that's, it's not real, it's just a symbol. No, 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 symbols are very real, very, very, very real. So, the crucifix coming first is a symbol of Christ himself leading us to the Father. He is leading us into worship. We don't get here on our own. We get here because Christ crucified leads us into worship, and so we follow him into worship. And as the processional begins, everyone stands, and we do so because we would do it for any other world dignitary, right? If it was a wedding, even if we didn't even know the bride's name, you would stand. We stand to do honor as our king passes by, right? The incense, if it's with us, is a picture of our prayers. It's, it's a symbol of prayer that, that sort of occludes the space from us, and it helps us recognize that, that God exists shrouded in cloud and mystery, and, and yet we ascend to him in prayer with, with, uh, with a sweetness that he loves because he loves for us to come to him in prayer. So we process in, and usually there's a hymn of some kind as we, as we begin, and then the, the beginning, the, these opening rites is a, is a mixture of things. So it begins with an opening acclamation. These change seasonally, but the typical opening acclamation is one that the church has been proclaiming for well over 1,500 years, and it is some variation of blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and blessed be His kingdom, which we'll say in a moment. And what we're doing right there is we are verbally enacting that this space now becomes God's kingdom. This is the place that we're headed to, and it's the place that we get told who we are, and we're made who we are. And so we begin not by saying hello to one another, but by declaring what's our destination and what have we become as we have entered into this place. We have become God's kingdom. In Anglican liturgy, we then say the prayer for purity. Uh, this is a beautiful, very old prayer, um, and it, it really, I think, sets the tone, right, that we don't get to come here as people hiding things away. Everything is open unto the divine. He knows every part of us. This is why we say, I unworthily approach your holy mysteries, right? He knows. He knows it all, and yet he, he beckons us to come. And then we hear a summary of the law in case it wasn't clear when we say that, you know, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Then we either hear the Decalogue if we're in a penitential season like Advent or Lent, or we hear a summary of the law. This is a reminder that we're not doing it, right? This, this isn't, it's not a checklist. It's not like, yeah, got that one. Love my neighbor as myself. All right, boom. No, th this is a recognition that, wow, I mean, how many times can I say this over and over and over again? And yet somehow there, there's something in me, right, that, that Paul talks about. I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I do want to do. There's something in me that just does not want to actually love God or love my neighbor. And so I have to be called back to this recognition that, that I, I'm not actually doing the things that I was made to do. And so we hear the summary of the law or we hear the entire Decalogue, and then we sing uh, with, with fear, right? We, we sing the Kyrie or the, or the Trisagion, Lord have mercy. Or holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. There's this constant sort of tension between feeling 
um, grossly inadequate, and also there's no other place to go. And so all we can do is, is beg for God's mercy. So we're already brought in with this really complex, rich set of awarenesses that the angelic worship has been happening since the last time we were here, and yet I have not stayed true in my awareness of God and in my love for Him, my love for my neighbor, and so there's something that's going to have to get set right. And we, we, we feel that tension already as we come in, and yet we immediately begin begging God for mercy, and then we turn to the Gloria. And, and the Gloria, um, we don't even know who originally wrote this. Uh, we know that it was added to the, the Christmas Vigil Mass very, very early on in the church's life, and then it was from there quickly added to the regular Sunday liturgy. And it really, it's a way of taking that first line, which is the angelic hymn, and it's essentially asking humanity, it's inviting humanity to come and participate in the angelic hymn, which is essentially what we're doing for the rest of the service, right? We're, we're just copying the heavenly liturgy. We're participating in what's going on. Uh, in the heavens. And so we, we sing the Gloria as a way of participating in the song of the angels. And then we sort of summarize this entire entrance movement with what's called the collect. And the collect serves to collect us as a group and all of our thoughts, even in the midst of this tension of recognizing that we enter as unworthy people, and yet God is merciful and He calls us to Himself, and we collect ourselves in this one prayer uh, and this prayer changes every week throughout the church year. So some of them are linked to particular feasts of the church year. And then as now we're in ordinary time, we'll talk more about what that is in a, in a minute, but there's just a different prayer each week. Um, traditionally, in Anglican liturgy, it fit very nicely with the themes of the lectionary readings, the Scripture readings that we'll talk more about in a moment. And so this, these are the entrance rites. This, this is where the church, I mean, try to imagine, right? It's, it's like 400, 500 A.D., we're somewhere in Rome. Uh, the bishop is still there because there's only one giant church, right? And, and he's trying to get everybody to recognize, hey, we're about to read the Scriptures, guys, and we're all sort of milling about. All of these rites come from the church just simply trying to gather the people to come and listen, to come and get ready for the liturgy. And so uh, now, of course, we, we enter and we have a time of silence, and, and these things are much more sort of uh, floral and, and uh, ritualistic, but the idea is that in these moments, all of the stuff that we've brought, it doesn't disappear. We're not hiding it away, but we're, we're contextualizing it, and we're recognizing that our stuff is not the ultimate stuff, that here we're about to do business with ultimate, and so we can, we can place it in perspective and then be prepared to hear the words of Christ in the Scriptures, okay? All right, that's enough jabbering for now. I'm going to go to the back. We're going to have a brief moment of silence, and then we're going to go through those entrance rites, uh, and then uh, after we dismiss the kids before our first Scripture lesson, I'll have a few more things to talk with you about. All right, gentlemen, shall we?
whose almighty word chaos and darkness heard and took their flight hear us we humbly pray and where the gospel day sheds not his glorious ray let there be light thou who didst come to bring on thy redeeming wing healing insight health to the sick in mind sight to the inly blind now to all humankind let there be light spirit of truth and love life-giving holy dove speed forth thy flight Move on the water's face, bearing the gifts of grace, and in earth's darkest place, let there be light. Holy and blessed three, glorious trinity, wisdom, love, might, boundless as ocean's tide, rolling and fullest pride through the world far and wide let there be light blessed be god the father the son and the holy spirit Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. All desires known and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets.
The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people, that bringing forth in abundance the fruit of good works, they may be abundantly rewarded when our Savior Jesus Christ comes to restore all things, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to invite our children ages three to nine to come forward. We want to pray for you and bless you as you go to the children's liturgy of the word. And as we do every week, we want to remind each of us that we are not sending you away uh, because you somehow cannot encounter God in the worship that his church offers him or that you're somehow a distraction. Uh, we want you guys to have a space and a time that's just for you where you're closer and you can hear and you can be quiet and you can consider what it is that Jesus is telling you because he is speaking to you as you hear his word being read and we want you to be able to hear him loud and clear because we believe that what he's telling you over and over again is that he loves you and he is good and he wants you to trust that he is good. So we're going to pray for you now as you go. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to have been given life in your life is such a gift, and it is one that we will never be able to think our way towards. You have instructed us to become like little children that we might enter the kingdom. And so we pray that as our children go forth now to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to them in your word, Lord, that they would be given the gift of your spirit and the gift of faith to trust the goodness of their shepherd all the days of their lives. We ask this in his name. We ask a blessing upon them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may go forth. You may be seated. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the liturgy of the Word, and then we'll have our lessons, and then I'll, I'll sort of go back and give us a bigger frame for understanding worship more generally. Um, all of our body movements also have meaning, right? They, they, they inform what we're doing in a way that simply sort of thinking about it won't. And this is very obvious in other aspects of our life, but for whatever reason, religiously, it sort of gets occluded sometimes. But uh, in the West, at least, um, we stand to praise, we kneel to pray, and we sit to learn. And so we sit for the reading of the lessons because we are, we are being made students of the Scriptures. And um, it was, I don't know, we were, maybe had been meeting publicly for like a year before I stopped printing the Scripture lessons. And I did that for two reasons. One, I want you to bring your Bibles because I want your kids to grow up realizing that these lessons don't just live in these little pamphlets that we throw away every week. That's important, right? But two, I, there, there really is something to hearing the Word. 
This is obviously normative, right? It's the, for, for, for our friends who are hearing impaired, we would of course say that you're, you're not somehow limited from experiencing the gospel. But um, as sort of human sociologists have, have found, I think they're right that, that reading and vision more generally is, is a posture of control. Guess what? You're not there anymore. I closed my eyes. But I can hear that, and there's nothing I can do to stop it, right? There, there's something more um, uncontrollable about our, our audio than there is about our vision. And so I noticed everybody doing this during the lessons. And so I stopped printing them because I want you to listen. I want you to hear the Word of God being proclaimed, right? So we sit, uh, we sit to hear the lessons. We, we uh, follow the lectionary. Uh, there, are more, there are multiple lectionaries. Uh, most of them are, are similar enough now, and, and so there are a lot of uh, Protestant churches, Anglican churches, and even some Roman Catholic churches use what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. We're using a variant of that. The lectionary is basically this. Um, if you were to be here every Sunday for three years, you would have heard read aloud almost the entire Scriptures. Not entirely. There, there's some parts of the Old Testament that are, you know, repeated in different books, and that's for a very particular reason uh, in terms of the Scripture part. But in terms of uh, explaining or expounding and preaching, um, the, the church has sort of edited some of that in, in terms of how we order the lessons. But uh, the lectionary follows the church calendar. We'll talk more about that in a second as well. But the idea being that um, you would hear the fullness of the Word of God being spoken out loud just in Sundays over a period of three years. Um, so, so the lectionary, uh, the full lectionary, which there, there's options, but we, we choose to do the fuller version, which is an Old Testament or apocryphal lesson, a New Testament lesson, a gospel lesson, and then we include psalmody. We include the psalm of the day. Uh, it, it's not quite the same as a lesson, but it's sort of embedded in there almost as a hymn to give us a time to pray and praise as we're reflecting on the lessons. Um, the gospel lesson, if you've been here before, you'll, and you'll see in a moment, uh, we, we process it out and we proclaim it from the center of the room. And that, again, symbol, ding, ding, ding. You guys can get a nickel for every time I use that word. If you remember that it's not fake, symbols are not fake, okay? It's not non-reality. We come to the center as a way of symbolizing that the, the center of our life together is the words of Christ. And in the Gospels, right, we hear Christ's words being spoken out loud, and so we want to remind ourselves that we are gathered here because Christ came in the flesh and spoke to us. That's why we're here. And so we, we picture that by proclaiming it uh, in the center, and I proclaim it this way, not this way, because it's a reminder that these words have to follow us and lead us out into the world to help us understand the work that we have been given to do. We have to take the words of Christ with us out there, not just try to capture them in here, okay? And we stand for that, again, as a way of giving honor to the Gospels wherein the, the recorded words of Christ are. We're not, we're not trying to set up a false dichotomy between the Gospels and the rest of Scripture. It's simply a way of recognizing that we're, we're sort of ever trotting closer to the center of these mysteries as we do these things. And so we, we want to give honor to to the Gospels as, as this um, summation of our salvation. Uh, and so as we do it, you'll, you'll, you'll see people, and you'll even see in the liturgy, I have three little crosses there. Uh, so what I do is I declare the Gospel. I say the Holy Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to whoever is the Gospel. And then I'm making little crosses on my head, on my lips, and on my heart. 
Uh, and as we'll talk about in a moment when we get more into ritual and liturgy, basically all I'm doing is I'm praying that the words of Christ would seep into my brain, that the words of Christ would be ever on my lips, and that the words of Christ would reside in my heart, right? Um, we'll talk about the incense in, in a second as well, but, but that's, that's the idea with the gospel lesson. And so um, as Anglicans, we have always placed a really heavy emphasis on Scripture, version, the authorized version, that was us. We did that. Uh, you're welcome. Um, so, yeah, we, we take very seriously worshiping in the vernacular. And, and this is not, I mean, the, 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 unfortunately, the Latin church got a little tripped up there for a while, but, but the Eastern church always did this. They, the first thing they did was they translated the scriptures and the liturgy into the vernacular of the people. That's what they did. And so the West needed to recapture some of that, that zeal, that missionary spirit. Um, but, but when, when Cranmer um, finished the first book of Common Prayer and the authorized version uh, eventually came along, the idea was that uh, a giant Bible would be chained to the pulpit in every local parish because they knew that you guys would steal them because there were no books around. And what are you going to do on a dark, cold night? You've got to have a book to read. But you could come to the church and you could read the Scriptures, right? Um, so I, I want to just say two things about, uh, about Scripture that may seem contradictory, but Everything I'm going to say tonight is going to seem contradictory, so that's okay. We'll talk more about that in a second, too. Um, number one, recognize that, that by the mistake of being born in the time that we were born, we have been given something that most people have not been given. Even when the Scriptures were translated into the vernacular, we did not have the technology that allowed us to just print them out so everybody could have one. The fact that you have how many Bibles in your house, that's insane to most people that have ever lived. So on the one hand, uh, there, there's a collect, uh, I think we might have just had it a couple weeks ago, or maybe it's coming up still, but one of the greatest collects uh, of the Anglican prayer book is, is one that's about the Scriptures, and it says, it, it asks the Lord that we would learn how to read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest. Um, if you have a Bible at home, you should, you should read it. It's a really good book. And most people in history did not have the opportunity to read it. At the same time, I want to say, most people in history did not have an opportunity to read it. And the interpretation of Scripture, which is, the Bible is a really weird book. Really weird. Anybody here read the book of Judges lately? <laughs> it's a weird book. And so, um, the, the interpretation of Scripture was never left to the individual. That's, that's a new thing. It was always the church together doing what we're about to do, hearing it read together, hearing it expounded in the authority of the tradition that, that comes before, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. But, um, so I encourage you to read your Bible, read it well, read it a lot, and also allow yourself to let the light of the church guide you as you try to interpret this very strange collection of texts over thousands of years uh, because it's, it's, it's difficult. And what, what Anglicans believe about Scripture is that everything necessary for salvation is in Scripture. Scripture is God's Word written, we say, and contains everything necessary for salvation, meaning you by yourself on an island, Bible floats up, you could read it, and you could know what you need to know for salvation. That's what we believe. And also, that's, 
that's a, like a wild 0% chance of that happening, right? When, when you encounter Christ, you come to His church. He deposits you in His church, and you enter through baptism, and, and, and here the word sort of takes on almost a new sort of meaning in the sense that we collectively, not just us, but the church throughout space and time interprets these books together, okay? All right. Let's continue with the reading of the Word. Thank you. A reading from the book of Malachi. You have spoken harsh words against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What do we profit by keeping his command? or by going about as mourners before the Lord of hosts. Now we count the arrogant happy. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. Then those who revered the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord took note and listened, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who revered the Lord and thought on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act and I will spare them as parents spare their children who serve them. Then once more you shall see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. With his right hand and his holy arm, he has won for himself the victory. The Lord has made known his victory. His righteousness has he openly shown in the sight of the nations. He remembers his mercy and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Shout with joy to the Lord, all you
comes to judge the earth. In righteousness shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory, Glory to you, Christ. As some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things which you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will this be and what will be the sign when this is about to take place? 
And he said, Take heed that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For this must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. There will be a time for you to bear testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So you've no doubt noticed by now, uh, anytime any of us come forward, we reverence the altar. Uh, and this has to do with, with ritual and what we understand to be happening here. And again, um, all of these things sort of, they, they collapse in on themselves. You're not going to be able to hold one up and say, well, this is for this and this is for that. And that's why I included this quote from Romano Guardini, who's a Roman Catholic theologian who was president at Vatican II. And he has a book about liturgy, and he says this, and he says, the soul must learn to abandon, at least in prayer, the restlessness of purposeful activity. It must learn to waste time for the sake of God and to be prepared for the sacred game with sayings and thoughts and gestures without always immediately asking why and wherefore. It must learn not to be continually yearning to do something, to attack something, to accomplish something useful, but to play the divinely ordained game of the liturgy in liberty and beauty and holy joy before God. In this section that I took this quote from, he's talking about the liturgy as being like a children's game and the way that children's games don't have purpose, but they are laden with meaning. And if you break the rules, you will find out about it immediately, right? He says it's very similar with the liturgy. And then he has another analogy that I think is really helpful as well. Uh, he says many of us want to think of the liturgy or the gathered worship of the church uh, like a gymnasium. It's very efficient, Everything is in the right place. It isolates the right muscles. You just do this so many times, and this is the result. But it is not like that. It is like wandering through the woods. And none of us wander through the woods and go, well, wait a second, why is this here? Somebody? Shouldn't we put this over here, guys? Anyone? No, we don't. That, that, that doesn't make sense in that context because we're doing something different. And we recognize that the ecosystem is complex enough that if we were to just uproot something without bothering to wonder why it's there, 
or with, without a real good reason, then we could throw off the ecology of the whole thing, right? So what I want to say, and, and this is why, if you've been around for a couple of years now and you're just now hearing all of this stuff, is because I don't like doing what I'm doing right now because it reinforces the idea for a bunch of rationalistic modern people like ourselves that there's just a, a reason for everything and we're just going to get right down to it and chop it all up and there's all these little bits and then we just know, oh, here's the reason for this. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. There's not just a little thing here and a little thing there. This is um, over millennia. The people of God have, have worshipped in these very similar ways, right? And so we are carrying forth this thing that we have received, and, and it's much, it'll go much better if we can learn to just play the game as Guardini has it, rather than constantly asking why and wherefore. Um, so I want to just take a moment now and talk a little bit about worship and what's happening in worship. And as you see here at the very beginning of your booklet, I've quoted that uh, wonderful, wonderful writer, David Foster Wallace. I'm sure you've all probably heard or seen or read this commencement address that he gave at, at Kenyon College uh, years ago. Uh, but here he is talking to a bunch of college graduates. There's, this is not a Christian school. And he says to them, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he goes on and he very insightfully lays out what most of us worship and how terrifying it will be for us when those things come to an end, right? But I think he's getting at something really, really key here. I think he understands more than he's even letting on and maybe more than he realizes. And I really think that he's right, and I don't, I don't say this because David Foster Wallace said it, just to say that this is an unavoidable conclusion the more that you think about what it means to be human is to be a worshiping being. This is Alexander Schmemann who wrote for the Life of the World. He's an Eastern Orthodox priest. Uh, he talked about all of the different ways that humanity has described itself over time. And for him, the single descriptor that should, should stick is homo adorans, worshiping man, the worshiping animal. Or as Jamie Smith would say, we're liturgical animals, right? And so part of, part of uh, what we do in worship here is because we believe that we were designed to do worship in a particular way, just by the fact that we're human beings. Obviously, there are, there are cultural molds and, and there are things that will change. There's always local adaptation. The church has always had that. But by and large, there are some things that are just kind of true about human beings and, and definitely true about God. And really, the, the main uh, impulse and emphasis that I, I continually try to drive here is that all human beings and the whole created universe has a telos. It has a terminal, right? It, we're on a train and we're heading somewhere. Where is the somewhere? The somewhere is God himself. All things came from God. All things are returning to God, right? So we all have this, we're, we're all born into the world. Nobody asked our opinion before we got here. We just showed up screaming and kicking and pooping everywhere. And slowly we sort of learn what the world is about and our place in it and all of that. But there's an unavoidable sense deep down that we're heading somewhere. E even if you think nothing happens after you die, you're still heading somewhere. It's unavoidable, right? And so for us, what we see in Scripture, what we see in the tradition of the church is that we're all headed toward God Himself and that we believe 
completely that God's desire for every human person is that they would live their life hidden with Christ in Him. And so our worship needs to make sense not just of who we are as human beings, but it has to reflect the God that we're worshiping. And we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the church has declared Him to be one in essence and undivided. This is the God through whom all things were made, and there is no other God beside Him. He is eternal, omnipotent, transcendent, holy, loving, and in Jesus Christ, He has become a human being. That's a ton of stuff in, in one little sentence. And, and I think um, if I could take an image from, from uh, the, the Torah of Moses, the teaching of Moses, this image of God being a pillar of cloud and a pillar of light as one of his early manifestations of himself to his gathered people that he is redeeming is very, very key for us because God constantly illuminates and then he constantly confounds that illumination, right? He is light and he is cloud. He draws us in with his light and he surrounds us with his cloud and we will never get to the place of, of understanding him. If we did, we would be God, right? It's not to say that we can't say true things about him. We believe that we can, but always we recognize it's partial truths. We're, we're as, as Emily Dickinson would say, we're telling the truth, but we're telling it slant because there's no other way uh, for us to tell it. So God reveals himself, and he remains hidden in unapproachable light. Those, those are the two things that we recognize as we come into this place. We come here because we believe that he reveals himself, and we need that revelation. And we also recognize that he conceals himself in unapproachable light. So if worship involves entering into the presence of just such a God, to me it would make sense that we would make use of His self-disclosure, largely in the Scriptures, and that we would find ourselves within a thick web of symbols and rituals, and that's the liturgy. Okay, so if you've been around liturgy at all or you've read any, any sort of pop-level books on liturgy, liturgy is usually defined as the work of the people, and that's true. But, but the word liturgia really means the work of a smaller group of people on behalf of the larger group. So think about the parks department of the city. I'm not mowing the lawn of the park, but I sure appreciate it when they do it. They're doing a work that more people benefit from, okay? The work that we are doing here, we believe, is the work of gathering up the entire created world and bringing it before God to Him on behalf of the world and for the world, right? Okay? So there's a lot happening here, and this is where um, there's so many directions that we could go here, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful of our time here. So if you have more questions after this, come and find me. We'll get coffee. Um, so liturgy is a public work by a smaller group performed for a larger group, and this is not a work that is performed by me or by those guys up there. It is a work that is performed by all of us there is a constant call and response humming through our service, right? We say things, you say things. We answer. We go back and forth. Um, this, this work together is really a recapturing of the priestly work that was forfeited by our first parents, by Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Adam and Eve were created and placed in a garden that looked a lot like a temple, and they were told to perform liturgy in the temple. One of, one of the sort of sub-meanings of the word that that when, when, when God tells Adam to get to work, one of the sort of hidden meanings is liturgy. Do liturgy. Do the work, right? 
And then when you get into the, the, the making of the tabernacle and the temple, what, it, what is all the imagery that you see there? It's the world. First, there's a priest put into a world, and he's told to do liturgy as a, as a worldly temple. Screws it up. God calls people out, sets up a special place where the world and the temple become the same thing again, and we can continue doing that work, right? So this is, this is how it all begins, and it just sort of goes on from there. And I think what we have to recognize as we come to do this work of offering the world up to God on behalf of the world, um, this worship work does not originate with us, right? The worship that we bring is the worship of Christ himself offered to the Father as, as the only true pure sacrifice that has ever been offered. So all, all of sacramental life, all of holy orders, being a priest or a bishop or a deacon, none of that is possible without Christ, because I'm not actually a priest. There's no priesthood of Stephen. There's priesthood of Jesus Christ, and I'm a part of that. And part of the Reformation was recapturing that we are all a part of that, right? It's just that now I again have been set apart in a special way to, to represent the community and to represent Christ in the midst of the community. We have to remember that this work does not originate with us. We are being caught up into and brought into the true and perfect worship that Christ offered his Father, which, and this is why Paul is constantly talking about being in Christ, right? It's because Christ is the one who offered true worship. Um, so our worship is offered in and through his life, death, and resurrection, which again should be a signal to us that most of our ritual, most of our symbolism is going to center around his life, death, and resurrection, because that's the only thing that matters, because his is the only worship that counts, right? We just, we're just being brought into it, and it's all grace. So it would make sense then that the way in which we worship would constantly just be running our fingers over those grooves of life, death, and resurrection over and over and over again. We do that in the church calendar. We do that within the liturgy itself. There's all, all kinds of ways in which we symbolize and ritually enact that. And it's, it's why participating in communion every week is such a beautiful and amazing gift, right? It's because we're being brought into Christ's work quite literally, as we, as we feed together on Him. So let's talk a little bit about ritual. Let's talk about the sign of the cross. This is one uh, for some of you newer folks that are always like, wait, how do we, what's, what's everybody doing? Uh, there's people that get really persnickety about this, especially my, my friends from the East. They love to, to do the, the Trinity and the two natures of Christ, right? So uh, you don't have to do this, but this is just kind of one of the ways that I learned. Uh, Western Christians, we, we, uh, we pull Okay, so we go here, here, and then opposite side, and we pull it back. Our Eastern friends, just to remind us that they live on a different hemisphere, they push. They do this. So depending on how many times I've visited Divine Liturgy, uh, you'll see me getting confused because I, you know, I, I, I try to go in both directions sometimes. But um, why do we do that? Why do we make the sign of the cross? Why do we have incense? Why do we have icons? Why do we have any of this stuff? The answer is uh, the Incarnation. That's, that's the real answer. But really what it is is this, is, is as a human person, uh, you have been created in the image of God, and what my more mystical theological friends like to talk about is that, is that um, the, the logos a sarkos, the, 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 the never unfleshed word, right? That to be made in the image of God and to recognize that God is outside of time and for Christ to be human and be the image of God? Do you, do you see how these connections just start to fold in on one another? 
And it's almost impossible to know, like, well, what came first, Christ's incarnation or the creation of man? I mean, on the timeline, I, I get it. I, I know how that works. But, like, theologically, it's a little muddled, right? So we're made in the image of God, and we're, we're made with bodies. And Christ came in the flesh so that He could suffer in the flesh so that you could have the resurrection of your flesh. That is the Christian hope. The Christian hope is not that your mind or your soul or your emotions would get uploaded to the eternal divine cloud. That's, that's not it, right? We are after bodily resurrection, which means that there's something about the way that God has set up the world that He must be worshipped by people who have bodies. Otherwise, He wouldn't have given you one. And he definitely would not have required his son to come and suffer in the flesh if there's no point to it, right? So, we have inherited a certain philosophical strain popularly that tells us that everything that matters is stuff that we can fit right in here and think about. Or, uh, for my Pentecostal friends, it, it, it's moved downward, and I think this is maybe even healthier than, than rationalism. It's just what I can feel. But it's all this internal disembodied sort of thing, and that's just never how God's people have worshipped Him, ever. Um, so, so we look back through the Scriptures and we recognize that, that God gave His, His people bodies so that they could encounter Him in, in worship. Um, and so when we, when we approach the altar, uh, we're approaching the place of Christ and the place where His work on our behalf is, is sort of centralized, if you will, and so we give honor to it. So this is called reverencing the altar, right? When I am approached by one of the acolytes, you'll see us nod our heads like this, right? It's a, a head bow. That's, that's a way of, of recognizing the image of God in the other person. Everything that we're doing here is very choreographed and it's supposed to help us understand how we should be living out there in the world, right? Um, so, so we reverence the altar. If there's, um, if there's bread and wine that's been consecrated already, uh, you would genuflect. That's where you would drop a knee, okay? You would go, go like that rather than reverencing. But um, we do this as a way of, of centering our attention on uh, the altar, on the work of Christ. And, and Anglicanism is, is a little uh, uh, schizophrenic on this. So some of my Anglican brothers and sisters would hate, hate it that I call it an altar, smacks of, of papal idolatry. Uh, I, I completely could not disagree with that more. Uh, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But the, the other name for it is the holy table. And this is, uh, the, the Orthodox refer to it as the holy table as well. They call all of this the altar. And then the actual table itself is the holy table. And these things really have two sort of uh, imaginary functions, right? One is, uh, it is a table. And we are being brought mystically into the last supper that Christ had with His disciples. And so we are, we are being fed by Him in friendship. That's a huge, huge thing that we need to take with us out into the world, the way that we treat other people, the way we bring people into our homes and, and invite them into friendship with eating. And again, this is one of those things that, like, you can back it all the way up, and I'm just going to tell you, ultimately, I don't know. I don't know why part of being human means connecting with other people through food. It's just true. And you can see this all the way back in Melchizedek. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, this sort of other, like quite literally otherworldly priest comes up to him, what does Abraham bring out and set before him? Bread 
and wine. This has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. It's just part of what it means to be human in God's world, okay? Um, so we, we bow as a way of giving reverence, and, and I think this is not all of it, but part of it is, you know, when you would come into a king's throne room and you would bow, guess who's over here? Dudes with really big axes, right? And what I'm saying to the king is, do what you're going to do, <laughs> right? I'm in your hands. I'm not going to fight you. I'm submitting, right? And again, you, you can think about submission all that you want, but until you, you get your body doing it, your mind is going to be missing something, right? So, so the, these practices of bowing or kneeling or genuflecting are, are really helpful. And I think the, the, the kissing of holy objects is the same. I was really worried about this one, uh, that it would scandalize everybody here before I started kissing the gospel book and other things. So a lot of times at a higher liturgy, when I enter, uh, rather than just reverencing the altar, I actually go up and kiss the altar. You probably notice me kissing the gospel book after I read the gospel. Um, in, in, in the ancient church and still today in, in the Orthodox world, anytime you would come for communion, you would eat communion, then you would kiss the chalice. Anytime the priest hands off any implement, his hand is kissed by his servers, right? Um, and... I started doing it because I was watching my kids, and they were reading their, we were reading storybooks at night, and they would see the little character on the page, and they would snatch it off the page, and they would, they would hold it, and they would kiss the page, and they would, they would kiss the, you know, whatever it was, whoever the character was in the book. And I, 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 I'll tell you, if, if you're a regular here and you have kids, sit closer. They are liturgical animals, okay? They're not going to distract me. Bring them on up so they can see because they really, really get it down deep in their bones. You kiss things that you love. And so what I, what I hope is being expressed, right, is not like, oh, I guess Father Stephen really likes that book when he kisses it. No, 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 right? Like, again, it's a choreographed moment that's reminding all of us, wow, the words of the gospel. Did, did anybody here do anything to deserve that we should hear those read to us? The voice of God speaking? No, this is an incredible gift. Mwah! I love it, right? So, so all of these things are, are really just rooted, I think, in, in what it means to be a human being. Um, and I, I think we're living uh, in a time, especially here in the West, it's the era of the factory farm, right? And our culture is just obsessed with efficiency. Everything is about production, productivity, ROI, is it deliverable? And so you've already heard the terms, right? That, that human beings are now, they're brand ambassadors, or you have a personal brand, right? And, and you're a consumer. And all of the ritual and liturgy of our world is about spending your money on things. That is the worship of our age. I was just reading last night a, a synopsis of a fantastic-looking book that's arguing that capitalism didn't suck worship out of the world. We're just literally worshiping money and we don't recognize it, right? So, so there's liturgies all around us, and, and the one that's, that's really huge right now is one that's all about efficiency and productivity, and I think, sadly, Christian communities have not been immune to this filing down of the human person in, into this little cog that can just get things done, right? We seem to have forgotten what it means to be human and how human beings relate to the divine, and instead we've been began mirroring the dominant culture's assumptions about what human life is for. And as a result, we have largely turned worship 
into a Coldplay concert and a TED Talk, and if you're lucky, it's a good one, right? And I say this as a guy who delivers the TED Talk every week here. It's not easy to make it that great. We, we have reduced worship into education and entertainment because those are the things that our culture currently worships. You see how the church writ large across America has started to mirror the culture rather than be something different? Okay? So what we do here is not about primarily education or entertainment. Obviously, hopefully, I, we're keeping your attention. Hopefully, you're learning something and growing in your knowledge about who Christ is and how God works in the world and your place in that. But really, the true purpose of worship is encounter and adoration. And I think that encounter piece sums up a lot of the, the ritual and the tone that we try to set here, which again, I'm telling you guys, even if it was Ted Wheeler who walked in here, boy, we'd all of a sudden, we'd be looking around. We'd be quieting down. We'd be wondering, why is this important person who most of the world has never heard of here, right? We do that normally with other human beings. And when we really take seriously that we are actually encountering the divine who made all things that exists, the God whom Ezekiel saw on a throne of fire with a, a river of fire flowing out from him, illuminating and consuming, our behavior needs to change, right? We, we have to approach this differently. We, we should be approaching each and every time we're gathered with a real holy fear. And it's, it's heartbreaking to me how, how in my own life, I don't take seriously the fact that I have the words of the gospel that I could meditate on anytime, and I choose not to, and that I can come to this place and be fed on the very body and blood of my Savior and just kind of, meh. I mean, what else are we doing? This is it. This is the only thing. This is the place where we get told who we are in all other aspects of our life. And to truly encounter God, I think, requires of us to have a real holy fear. And that holy fear leads us into adoration. It's not always exuberant. Sometimes it is. Be here for our Easter vigil. You'll hear the ringing of the bells and the kids going crazy and we have a really great time. It's usually kind of subdued, um, but it's not because we're not, you know, full. It, it's because we're trying to... Um, we want to be really reverent and recognize that, that the God that um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped is the God who's here with us. That the God that encountered Saul on the road to, the, to Damascus and blinded him with his light is the God that we worship, right? Being here and doing the liturgy is about encounter and adoration, which means it will never be efficient. You gotta chuck that one out, okay? It has always existed as an extravagant playfulness and a prodigal, what, what Schwaman calls a useless beauty. So Schwaman talks about the, the beauty of the, of, the, of the hangings and the vestments and everything else. And, and I, I've taken this to heart. The first thing that we bought as a parish before I even had really a paycheck was a chalice. It, it cost hundreds of dollars. But this is the thing that we're putting the wine in that we say becomes Christ's blood. Was that a good purchase? Did that, was that efficient? 
No, we, we could have used a plastic cup. I mean, not really. The cannons would have something to say about that. But um, it's, it's not efficient. And what, what, what Schmemann says is beauty is not efficient. When you're having a friend over who you really care about or an important person or whoever it is, you put out the tablecloth. You get the fresh-cut flowers and you put them on the table, right? You have the fancy napkins and the better china and the nicer silverware. Is that efficient? No. But you're signaling all kinds of things in doing that. So this is, this is what we're doing in the liturgy. Uh, I, I would say that the, the, the liturgy in, in contemplating God's majesty is about as efficient as a wedding night. And, and, and Schmemann talks a lot about the liturgy being uh, brought into the nuptial chambers, right? He says we're filled with the nuptial joys. We're brought into the bride chamber of the Lord, right? There's nothing efficient about that. Uh, I was talking with a young couple who just got married here recently, and we were were talking about uh, the difference between sort of theologizing, which I think, again, in our rush to educate and entertain has become much of what the gathered church has been up to for a while, rather than encountering through prayer and worship, and I said, okay, so when you guys got married on your wedding night, you, I mean, you guys just talked about it, right? You just were like, oh, man, can you imagine if we, if we could consummate this marriage? How incredible would that be? Oh, we should talk about that all night. No, nobody does that, right? You, 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 you act. And I think this is, you know, for Paul to say, I speak of a mystery, but I'm not talking about men and women anymore. I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is an unavoidable, it's irreducible, that there is an embodied mystery here that takes time. And, and it shouldn't be like a, oh boy, how much time are we going to take? I mean, does that, that's not how you went into your wedding night if you had one. No, like you're, you're here for it. You're ready, right? And it's the same idea. It's not about efficiency. Um, I think it's really misleading to, to talk about uh, churches in terms of worship style. This is happening a lot right now. Liturgy is kind of the CCM of the 2010s. Everybody wants to talk about it. So, you know, this church is liturgical, that church is charismatic, this church is seeker-friendly. I think this, this uh, causes us to misapprehend what's really happening uh, in, in church and, and what should be happening in the, in the, the capital T tradition, which I, I've talked about just a couple weeks ago, so if you have questions on how we understand tradition and authority, please come and find me later. But um, you have to understand, on the one hand, to be a small-c Catholic Christian means to, to hold to that which was taught everywhere, always, and by all, right? So we are looking back. We're looking back to the church that gave us the creeds, that gave us the canon of Scripture, that gave us the liturgy, and we want to make sure that we're connected to those people, right? Because Christ gave to His apostles the spirit of power and a spirit of authority to go out and baptize all, all people and make disciples of all nations, right? But to... to inadvertently start thinking that, well, okay, if we can just get back to how things were, then we'll be fine. That's not at all what we're about. And if you think that there was a golden age of the church, you should probably read First and Second Corinthians again because there was never a golden age of the church. It was filled with people like us right from the beginning. Bad news and good news. No, no, no. What we're doing is what I call eschatologically indexed. It's rooted out there in the future. And the reason that what we do looks like what the church did a thousand years ago and 1,500 years ago is because they were indexed to the eschaton, to the end age, when all things will be summed up in Christ and the worship that has been happening in heaven becomes all in all. That's what we're looking to. 
right? That, that's what sort of drives the liturgical choices that we make. And so we see throughout Scripture, right, from, from Isaiah in the throne room, Moses up on the mountain, Ezekiel, parts of Daniel, all the way up to John the seer in Revelation, they all have the same vision. The angels are singing the same song. They're dressed the same way. Everything is the same. Not a lot has changed, right? Some things have changed. And that's why there's no lamb. Because Christ is our sacrifice. But to say that human beings and God have fundamentally changed so much that we should now throw out all of the descriptors that Scripture gives us about worship, I think is, is really uh, uh, unhealthy. Um, and so we have, we have to recognize that all of the tabernacle and temple ritual uh, was a copy, it was a type of the heavenly archetype, and that God got really into the details with that stuff. It's not like he doesn't care. And all of it finds fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest who offered himself once for all as the sacrifice that was needed, that brought all animal sacrifice to an end. And we have to take seriously that Christ has truly fulfilled the law of Moses in every way, and that many things that were binding on God's people are no longer binding on God's people, right? But at the same time, God has not changed, and humanity has not fundamentally changed, and the archetype of celestial worship has remained the same. So some of the accidents, some of, some of the rituals have different signifiers and different pointers, but it's the same thing happening, and it should always be the same thing happening. The church is to be a heavenly society on earth, most concentratedly in our liturgical life. This is where we manifest the kingdom. This is what I told you a couple weeks ago about incense. Incense is almost manifesting and marking out, this is now God's kingdom, right? So I, we, we sense the gospel book, we're setting it apart. We sense the altar, we're setting it apart. We sense the gifts, we're setting them apart. Then we, I get sensed and you get sensed. We're all being made holy. We're being set apart for a specific use in God's kingdom. Um, there's a couple quotes there, uh, one from David Fagerberg, uh, who, who, who talks about how the, the church is, is displaying the future now. It's not pointing ahead to something, it, it's displaying it now. And I think this is what Schmemann is getting at. Uh, in that quote there where he says, the church is not an institution that keeps divinely revealed doctrines and teachings about this or that event of the past. She is the epiphany of these events themselves. That is mind-boggling, right? What he's saying is we're not just here to talk about a thing that already happened. He's saying it is happening here in our midst, and we are showing it forth just by being here. So he says the church can teach about these things, first of all, because she knows them, because she is the experience of their reality. So when we go through the church calendar and we get to the Feast of the Ascension or the Feast of the Resurrection or the Feast of the Nativity, what Schmemann is saying is that all of those events that, that happened back then are actually being brought to bear and being displayed in our life together here and now. We're actually entering into them, being caught up outside of time. Um, the liturgy of the Eucharist is the journey of the church into the dimension of the kingdom. Uh, the, the church exists as Pascha, which is the, the Eastern term for Easter, but, it, but it, it has reference to Passover. Right now, look up. We're, we're in a ship, right? There's the bottom. I don't, I'm not a sailor. I don't know these terms. Nate, help me out. That's the, what is that, the hull? I don't know. Sure. That's the bottom, okay? We're in a boat, and we are on a journey, and as we gather, we are, we are marking the passage from this world to the kingdom. 
That's what's happening, okay? Um, so I, I just want to say one last thing about, uh, about ritual, and that is that ritual is just simply part of being human. And I, I know where I am. I, I get that I'm in Portland, Oregon, USA, uh, where no one wants to be told what to do. <laughs> Uh, and definitely we don't need a bunch of old fuddy-duddies who died a long time ago telling us what to do. Um, but we do, we do ritual with so much of our life without realizing it. The way that you take your coffee in the morning is a ritual. The way that you get ready for bed is a ritual. The way that you go shopping is a ritual. Don't be afraid of rituals. Be aware of rituals. Right? This is where Jaroslav Pelikan can say, the only alternative to tradition is bad tradition you're not going to get away from it, right? Everybody worships. You just have to choose what you're going to worship. All right, that was a ton. Uh, let me give just a brief plug about the church year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we're going to continue on with worship. So if you look toward the back of your hand out there, there's this colorful wheel. <clears throat> uh, the church year exists on two main cycles, the Christmas cycle and the Easter cycle. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, these can be referred to as different things, nativity cycle, paschal cycle, uh, it just means Christmas and Easter. <clears throat> Advent for us in the West is the beginning of the year. This is the new year that we're coming up on in a couple of weeks. Um, it begins the church year, and we begin by waiting. So we'll change all of the colors to purple, uh, and, and the purple signifies for us a, a time of preparation. Uh, almost always there will be an overtone of, of uh, penitentialness because we recognize that we have not been preparing. We are not prepared for Christ to arrive in our midst, right? So we, we need to be made ready, and so we do that with Advent. Uh, and then we, we come to Christmas. We celebrate the Incarnation, and there's a whole slew of feasts in Christmas week, uh, and moving into Epiphany, which is when we recognize the Magi coming and worshiping the, the child Christ, worshiping this king uh, in the stable. Um, we move from there through, uh, we celebrate what's called Epiphany Tide, there's a bunch of lessons and, and feasts on the revelation of Christ to the nations, uh, and then that leads us up into Lent. Lent, again, is a time of preparation for Easter. Uh, historically, the 40 days of Lent is when the catechumens would enter into a, a really rigorous form of catechesis. They would be catechized for about three hours a day, every day. They would have exorcisms every day, casting the demons out of them. And then on the Easter vigil, they would be, they would be baptized out in the baptistry separately, totally nude, head to toe, covered in oil. Put, they would put on the alb, the white baptismal gown, and they would for the first time enter and receive the holy mysteries. Always up until that point, the, the catechumens would have to leave at this point in the liturgy. They would be here for the declaration of the word and the sermon, and then the catechumens would depart. In the Orthodox liturgy, they still sing this. They don't actually kick them out, but they sing it every week. Let the catechumens depart. Let all the catechumens depart. Let none of the catechumens remain, because they have to repeat things three times over there. So the, 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 the impression of entering new life through baptism and then being brought into the mysteries would have been overwhelming. The church is in darkness. The newly baptized enter. The Easter acclamation goes up. The lights come on. The noises ring. And they participate in, in, the, in the Eucharist feast. We then mark uh, Pentecost, the Ascension, all of these things. Really what we're doing, do you, do you see the tie-in? We're following the life of Christ around and around and around again because we want our lives to be tied to His, and, and there's something to learn from His life every time we go around. And we're taking seriously what Shmeman, what I just said, right? And we're not looking back to these things. We, we, we are 
we are a big light-up sign, eat here on the side of the highway for, the, for a weary world as we do these things, right? They, they, are, they are happening among us as we go. And so uh, currently we're in ordinary time. Ordinary doesn't mean boring or normal. It means ordinal, or, ordered, numbered, right? So we're in the, what, is, what does this say? We're in the 22nd Sunday after Trinity. So those numbers will climb uh, until they stop, which I think next week is the Feast of Christ the King, and then Advent begins. So we're, we're coming up on the new year of the church here. Um, and, and so the liturgy shifts a bit for these times of preparation. We'll say the full Decalogue rather than uh, just the, the summary of the law, uh, etc. Um, one last thing before we continue. On the back side of that page, you'll see just a small diagram of the church. Uh, this is just a generic diagram of the church. This church is built uh, backwards, and I don't know why, but the pulpit should be over there. So in a traditional church, this would be the gospel side, and this would be the epistle side. So that's why you'll notice the gospel book gets put here until we read it, and then after we've read it, we move it over here because uh, we've, we've finished with that section of the liturgy. But um, churches historically are built like the temple, right? And so, so there's the outer court, there's the holy place, and there's the holy of holies. And so the, the altar corresponds to the holy of holies. This is why in, in traditional Anglican churches there would be what's called a rood screen, which would be a huge piece of, you know, statuary that goes all the way across as a way of sort of occluding, right? And in the East they still have the curtain because the, the, these mysteries are, are fearful and awesome. Uh, and so I, mean, I wish we had a rood screen. If anybody wants to build us one, come and find me afterwards. I've got plans in my car. No, I don't. Not really. Um, okay. I've been drawing for a while. Let's continue in worship now. Um, let me just find my place here. Okay, so we're to the creed. So we're going to um, say the creed, and, and as we do, <clears throat> I just want to say, uh, people that come from non-creedal Christian backgrounds can kind of feel constricted by the creed. I like to talk about the creed like walls of a house. You build walls on a house not to look at your wall. You build it so that you can relax and get creative with the space that's been given you. You can't be creative with, with limitless space. You have to, oh, thank you. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You can't get creative until you demarcate stuff. That's what the creed does. The creed, the creed gives us a place within which to work and to work out our theology. So if, if you feel constricted by the creed, don't be. It, it, it's, a, it's a really helpful um, foundation and wall for us to get creative about what we do theologically, as a gathered body. Um, just a couple things to note. When we get to the end of the creed, when we say we look for the resurrection of the dead, we sign ourselves with the cross. Again, crossing yourself is a verbal form of prayer. All you're saying is it's only by the cross of Christ that this is my hope. Only through Christ's work on the cross will I attain the resurrection of the dead. When I give you the absolution in a moment, I'm going to make the sign of the cross over you. I'm saying God forgives you and absolves you of your sins because of the cross of Christ. Right? So all, all of these things are, are forms of... of, of um, nonverbal prayer. And then <clears throat> typically uh, in our penitential seasons of Advent and Lent, we'll actually genuflect at the incarnation line, but here in ordinary time and other seasons, we'll simply do a, a, a solemn bow or a reverence. Uh, we do that as a reminder of Christ's humility in coming in the incarnation. So you'll, if you're able to look up, you'll see us making that reverence when we get to the line of the incarnation. Uh, following the creed, we'll have the prayers of the people. Uh, this is really where the church starts to actually dig into the work that we're gathered here to do because we really are gathering the whole world into God's presence and offering it up to Him. And so we do that first with our prayers, right? So we, we pray for the whole world. We pray for the whole church. 
We pray that God would, would work in the world around us and in our leaders. And then we move into the confession and absolution. And this is the transition point in the liturgy. And in the confession and the absolution, we are being made right with God. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about objectivity in a few moments when we get to the, the Eucharist prayer. But um, just know that, that when the priest stands up and declares absolution, it is not the priest speaking. It is Christ speaking. Whether you feel forgiven or not, you are forgiven, right? Th those that come with faith and repentance that God will forgive them, He does these things in the actions of His church. Uh, and so if you were here when I got ordained, this is what is said in, in presbyteral ordinations. They, they anoint your hands and they tell you, uh, you've been given the power to forgive sins. This is what Christ told His apostles. This is part of being an apostolic succession. So we'll, we'll confess our sins and then we'll be made right with God. And then in the transition point, we'll then pass the peace. And this is really key because it's not a time to say hello. It's a time to say, okay, I have now been made right with my Creator. Now I'm going to make sure I'm right with my fellow man. So to pass the peace with people here is to say, I'm at peace so far as it depends on me with all people in my life. And if you're not, what does Christ tell you? Leave your gift on the altar. Don't come to the altar, right? You have to be at peace with the people around you so far as it depends on you, okay? I, I, I get that there may be people in your life that it would, it would be harmful for you to continue trying to make peace. You can't make peace happen. But so far as it depends on you, you need to be at peace with all people. That's what passing the peace means, all right? We're going to continue now with the creed. Then we'll move into the prayers of the people, confession of sin, uh, and then we'll get to the passing of the peace. All right, you guys ready? Stand with me as we confess our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray for the church and for the world, saying, hear our prayer. For the peace of the whole world, 
and for the well-being and unity of the people of God, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For Foley Beach, our Archbishop, and Ken Ross, our Bishop, and for all the clergy and people of our diocese, especially the Anglican Church of the Resurrection in Casper, Wyoming, and this, our congregation. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For all those who proclaim the gospel at home and abroad, especially Christ the Church Anglican, sorry, Christ the King Anglican Church, a mission parish in Salem that will commence this month, and the Nelson family, and for all who teach and disciple others, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted for their faith, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For our nation, for those in authority, and for all in public service, especially Donald, our president, Kate, our governor, and Ted, our mayor. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For all those who are in trouble, sorrow, need, sickness, or any other adversity, especially Milo. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For all those who have departed this life in certain hope of the resurrection, especially Richard, in thanksgiving let us pray. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers for the sake of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. I invite you to stand as you're able as forgiven people and hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And with your spirit. Greet one another in the Lord.
You may be seated. A couple of announcements for you before we continue on in worship. Uh, just keep in mind we've got our midweek prayer gatherings happening at our downtown prayer chapel. So if you're available to join us before work on Tuesdays, we meet at 7 a.m. for morning prayer. Uh, on Wednesdays, if you've got a, a leisurely lunch hour, we say a noon Eucharist. Uh, it takes about a half an hour, so you've still got time to grab a bite to eat afterwards. And then on the second Thursday of every month, we have an evening prayer and sort of theological discussion with drinks and snacks and that sort of thing. Uh, our community groups are meeting, so if you'd like to join one or if you're new and want to get plugged in, uh, you can come and find me. I can get you pointed in the right direction, or you can email Lindsay Elzinga at community at All Souls Portland. Um, we've got a potluck coming up the first Sunday of December, um, so be looking in your email inbox if you're a regular here. Uh, we'll have more information about that coming to you soon. Uh, as we continue in worship now, I want to just say a few words about uh, the offertory and then the beginning uh, of the Eucharist section uh, so that we don't have to sort of break up too much in the midst of, of what we're actually doing there. Um, so the offertory really, I think, is kind of the, the white-hot core of everything that we're doing here. Um, and so it, it's even enacted for us. So in the offertory, um, I begin to prepare the altar, uh, and then the gifts are all brought forward, and the gifts include our, our resources. So we, we give of our first fruits. It's just a little, you know, depending on your view of things, more or less sophisticated than actual animals and, and fruit and vegetables. Uh, we bring money. Uh, but it, it's, it's a way of, again, tethering ourselves to the Lord and saying, this is how His people have always worshipped Him. And it's, it's a way of staking our faith that, that He provides all things. And as we say in, in the liturgy, that all things come from You, O Lord, and of Your own have we given You. Uh, but with the, the financial gifts come the gifts of bread and wine. And so one of the things that I'm doing up there is what's called the, the, the secret prayers, and it's, it springs all the way back from, from Judaism. And so one of the things that Christ was doing with His disciples in the Last Supper was this very elaborate uh, dinner that, that Jewish men specifically uh, would have done a lot. Um, and there would have always been a, a food portion, and there would be an extended prayer of blessing, and then there would be a, a shared cup that would go around after an extended prayer of blessing. And so part of what I'm doing and preparing is I'm, I'm praying parts of those prayers quietly as, as we begin. And then what we're doing together is really kind of saying the rest of those prayers together. So we're, we're, we're um, participating in a very, very ancient thing um, that's really pictured for us beautifully in the Last Supper. Um, so, yeah, the, the moment of offertory is not, this is not like a, a, a great way for us to eke more money out of you or to transition from one thing to the next. This is really sort of the core display of the friendship that we have with God because we are giving gifts to one another. We're giving and receiving gifts just like friends would do. That's a really, really beautiful thing. Um, as we get there, uh, I'll say, the Lord be with you, and you'll respond, and I'll say, lift up your hearts. This is known as the Sursum Corda. It's Latin for hearts lifted. To say, the Lord be with you, that alone is, the, I mean, the gospel is right there, just in those few little words. And with your spirit, right? To, to, to say that the Lord could be with us is shorthand for the gospel. It, it includes everything that we do here. And to then say, lift up your hearts, what, what we're really doing is we are actually being caught up into that heavenly worship. And so, we believe that we really are joining our voices with angels and archangels and the whole host of heaven, right? And this is where we get into the, the company of the saints and those that have gone on before us. And we sing the angelic thrice holy hymn. Um, this part of the liturgy includes what are called prefaces. So when I get to that, that first paragraph there, it is right our duty and our joy always and everywhere to give thanks to you. 
That's, that's a, just a preface. And then there's proper prefaces, and they, they correspond to the season. So you'll, if you're here regularly, you'll notice those change. For this week, it's through Jesus Christ our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death in the grave. That's just sort of a, a regular Sunday proper preface. Next week for Christ the King, it'll be different. The week after that for Advent, it'll be different. It's again, it, it fits with the season as a way of sort of grounding us in uh, the particulars of what we're doing. Um, you can read there. Uh, I, I would never tell you to do this any other time, but during the offertories, we're preparing things. You can read there more about the Eucharist prayer on the opposite page. Um, I do want to just say um, Western Christianity is, whether you like it or not, is rooted in medieval scholasticism. Uh, Reformational Christianity cannot avoid medieval scholasticism. That's just the reality. If you don't understand anything I'm saying, don't worry about it. If you have questions about what I'm saying, come and find me afterwards. What we've done is we, we've taken every possible theological category and we've just tried to drill it all the way down. We want to know all of the reasons. It gets back to that, the gymnasium versus the forest, okay? When it comes to Eucharistic theology, uh, I am uh, going to stand with my, my Eastern Orthodox brethren and say, this is truly Christ's body and Christ's blood. If you ask me how, I'm going to tell you wrong question. I don't know how. Uh, I trust that what Christ says is true. What Christ says is, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? This is why this is the core of our worship, is this is a commandment of Christ, that we do this in remembrance of Him. And already in Paul's letters, which are even earlier than the Gospels, we see a, a community of the church enacting a particular liturgy. That's why he can say to them, as often as you gather together, you eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Okay, so um, you can read more there about how kind of the Anglican prayer book language straddles the line, but the, the, the two sort of uh, word, theological terms are objective versus receptive. So there's a receptive view that says that it's those who have faith, and for them it is the body and blood of Christ. I agree with that. Uh, the problem with that only being the only thing happening is that why else would Paul say that you're eating and drinking your own judgment if it's for people who don't have, for people who don't have faith, it's nothing, right? It can't be nothing. Scriptures don't allow for it to be nothing. That's not a possibility. So the posture for all of us is to approach with faith. That's how we are to come to the table, trusting that Christ is true to His Word. But it's just like the absolution. It is objectively true whether you feel it or not. And I think there's immense freedom in that. You do not have to feel all of the feels as you come. The feelings will come eventually. They'll come and go. But as your body practices coming forward and kneeling and receiving and eating and eating with faith, you, you can rest in knowing that you truly are communing with God and, and feasting with Him in friendship. Uh, it, it's just objectively true. I don't have to hype you up to believe that it's true. It's just true. Okay? So, that's, that's uh, there, and again, there are liturgical signals for that, right? If I didn't believe that this was truly the body and blood of Christ, I wouldn't ask you to kneel, right? Part of receiving the Eucharist, uh, again, it is very instructive. You don't take the Eucharist. You receive the Eucharist. So, those of you that, that come here regularly, just FYI, I don't, this stuff, I don't care about this stuff. This is down in the details. But, the, the, the traditional way to receive is either on the tongue 
or you, you make a cross with your hands. And all the way back in like Irenaeus, I mean, we're talking like disciple of the apostle John, talks about how you make a, a, a pillow like it would be for a crown to, to hold the body of Christ in your hands. And then rather than picking it up, you just, you bring it to your mouth, right? You're, you're receiving. In, in every aspect, you're receiving. Uh, when the cup comes, if, if you're going to partake of both, uh, the, the cupbearer would love it if you would grab the base with your thumb like this and just help them. That helps them know that you've gotten the wine without spilling it. Um, uh, intinction is, you, you, can, you can dip if you'd like. Uh, our, our server will dip it for you. Uh, typically, if you're going to have it dipped, the server would place it in your mouth for you. So uh, I, I get that there's uh, concern about germs and that sort of thing. I addressed that last week. But um, yeah, I, I just want to make clear the posture for all of us is to approach with faith. Um, and I think it's deeply unfortunate that Western Christianity has been mired in this debate about, well, is he really present? How is he really present? In what way is he really present? How does he become really present? And we, we are missing the boat. We're, we're, we're totally missing it. God is here with us, and he's given to himself to us in bread and in wine, and in arguing about how he's present, we have missed what that signifies, right? Jesus did not use wheat kernels and grapes. He used something that requires human work and ingenuity. He also did not use plastic or, or, or something that is only made by man, right? He's using something that comes from the earth, requires the work of humanity, and, and sustains us in our life. And I think this is, again, you can back all the way up to why would Jesus be truly present in the Eucharist? Why do you need food to live? Like, I mean, I get the process. I get that you die if you don't eat, but why is the world created that way? I have no idea. This is how God chooses to communicate himself. So, in a minute, we'll say, come and feed on Christ and do so with joy. So, I'll let you read uh, that, and I'll let you read uh, the last few sections on your own, either tonight or at home. Uh, please, if you have questions, follow up with me. Uh, as you can tell, I have a ton more to say and no time to say it in. So I'd love to get together with you and talk more about this, especially if you're uh, concerned or confused. Um, would be happy to talk with you. But now let's, uh, let's get to work, shall we? All right.
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right, our duty and our joy always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave, 
and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself, and when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory, that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this for remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us also that we may worthily receive this holy sacrament and be made one body with him so that he may dwell in us and we in him and bring us with all your saints into the fullness of your heavenly kingdom where we shall see our Lord face to face. All this we ask through your son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Amen.
Now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia! Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs underneath your table, but you are the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who comes to take away the sin of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb.
I have no help but thine, nor do I need thine other arm save thine to lean upon. It is enough, my Lord, enough indeed. My strength is in thy might, thy might the sin, but thine the righteousness. Mine is the guilt, but thine the cleansing blood. Here is my robe, my refuge, and my peace. Thy blood, thy righteousness, O Lord my forever more 
Please stand as we sing. Slow the watches 
pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out into the world to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. So now we are following the crucified Christ back out into the world. So let us go forth in the name of Christ. 
Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.